Good morning, everybody. <clears throat> Today we conclude a series of six sermons looking at the uh, early history of the church, uh, the birth of Catholic Christianity, AD 90 to 312. <clears throat> and what we've been doing is looking at a tremendously formative stage in church history, a stage in history that gave us in broad outline the church that we have today. A stage in history that takes us, on the one hand, from the close of the New Testament to, on the other hand, the conversion of the Emperor Constantine uh, in the year 312 AD. And that began a whole different era. So the period of time that we've been looking at is a period of time when the church became Catholic in two senses of the word Catholic. Catholic meaning a united, international, all-inclusive, universal movement as opposed to isolated, independent congregations. And Catholic, secondly, in the sense of orthodox as opposed to uh, heretical, um, one united set of beliefs uh, and them expressed in creeds. Well, our topic today is the apologists, and I'll explain who they were and what they did in a minute. But let's begin with a question. A question, if I may, a question to any parents in the room, and perhaps especially uh, to any Christian parents of uh, teenagers or young adults. And this is the question. Are you anxious for the salvation of your children? Are you anxious that as your youngsters spread their wings and start to explore the world, they'll encounter ideas, ways of thinking that are anti-Christian, philosophies and thinking that could perhaps draw them away from faith in Jesus Christ? And I guess there's only one possible answer to that question. Of course you are. And with good reason. Let's go back. Let's go back in time, about 2,000 years, to the time of the birth of Christ. Now, if you were a good Jewish boy or girl, when you went to school, you learnt the law of Moses and the Old Testament prophets, and you learnt the Psalms, three of which we've sung this morning, or four of which we've sung this morning. Sensational. Thank you, guys. Wonderful. Um, you learnt the Psalms, and you, and you learnt the, liter the wisdom literature, like um, Andrea read to us this morning, Proverbs chapter 8. And you learnt to, to think like a Jew. And you thought about the big questions in life in terms of story and narrative, prose and poetry. And when you grew up and you joined in weighty discussions about the big questions in life, you learned to speak in riddles and parables, rhetorical questions and figures of speech. Again, he said, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what? parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants, with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. With many similar parables, 
Jesus spoke the words to them. As much as they could understand, he did not say anything to them without using a parable. But when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. So that's how you thought if you were Jewish, if you were, in contrast, Greek, which is to say everybody else in the known world. Uh, when they went to school, they learned ancient Greek literature and philosophy, Aristotle, Plato, Pythagoras, Socrates, Epicurus, etc., etc. And you learned to think like a Greek. You learned logic, rhetoric, mathematics, algebra, trigonometry, geometry. You learned to measure and label. You learnt, for example, as you probably also have learnt, that the area of the square whose side is the hypotenuse of a right-angled triangle is equal to the sum of the areas of the squares of the other two sides. Pythagoras's theorem, a very, very ancient idea, traditionally ascribed, ascribed to Pythagoras, a Greek philosopher who lived more than 500 years before Jesus. Jumping forward a few decades from the time of Jesus' birth into the 30s, the 40s, the 50s. Now we have the gospel of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ spreading out from Jerusalem, first by way of synagogues and then by way of Gentile conversions. The gospel making its transition from the Jewish world into the Greek world. Yes, even though it was the Roman Empire, everyone thought like Greeks, even the Italians. Well, today, as our children transition into high school and then into university, they will encounter a world where God is not necessarily known, a world where Jesus Christ is not central. They might meet the world of science where God formally is an unnecessary hypothesis. The universe and everything in it explained without reference to the word who became flesh and dwelt amongst us. Feminist theory, postmodern thought, gender identity politics, political correctness and what's become known as neocultural Marxism, worlds of ethical thought and explanatory power that are happy to write off religious people and spiritual experience as some kind of reactionary throwback, throwback, and now redundant step on the road to true enlightenment. Now, children might have to be held uh, through perhaps one of two possible responses conversion to these ways of thinking so that they abandon faith in Jesus Christ. Alternatively, they might be scandalized so that all that they can do is criticize and condemn and hang out in nice, safe, Christianized ghettos. Is there a third option? Well, if we were in church in the year 120 A.D., we might be fretting about similar questions. But the focus of our worry would be Plato, Socrates, Aristotle. 
In the same way that our Western intellectual culture now provides a worldview that is simultaneously compelling and godless, so too, in the period of history that we're looking at today, Greek philosophy and literature also provided a worldview that was compelling, that made sense, that had obvious explanatory power, that yielded results, that provided a framework for an ethical life. Yet, equally, neither knew nor had any use for the God of the Bible. What about when our children encounter Platonism? We might have fretted and worried. Augustine of Hippo, who actually lived just kind of after the period of history that we're looking at in this series, Augustine of Hippo wrote in his book Confessions that he was grateful that the Lord had allowed him to read Platonist books before he became a Christian because he felt that they had laid a foundation for his thinking that was to be useful later when he encountered the Holy Scriptures. However, his belief was that if he had made a commitment to Christ first and then discovered Plato, he could have been, quote, snatched away from the solid foundation of piety, unquote. If he'd encountered Plato after his conversion, it might have threatened his faith in Jesus. He recognized that he could have been so impressed by that system of thought that he'd lost his faith. Alternatively, he might not have been so impressed that he was snatched away. Rather, he might have been scandalized into radical, hostile rejection. Tertullian, a, a brilliant Christian thinker of the third century, he was a passionate hater of Greek philosophy. The only thing dabbling in Greek philosophy ever gave anyone was a bad case of heresy, as far as he was concerned. Valentius was a Platonist. Marcion was a Stoic. What do Athens and Jerusalem have in common? Away with all attempts to produce a mottled Christianity of Stoic, Platonic, and dialectic composition. We have no need of curiosity reaching beyond Christ Jesus. When we believe, we need nothing further than to believe. Search that you may believe, then stop. In, in other words, when you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, you've arrived. Why would you keep searching for truth or meaning after meeting Jesus and receiving him as Lord? That's just confusion as far as Tertullian was concerned. Greek philosophy? Blind leading the blind. And what Tertullian is right about is that we should be utterly clear-minded about where wisdom is to be found. God is the source of all wisdom. God is the source of all wisdom in the face of Jesus Christ, perfectly in his Son, perfectly Jesus on the cross. Jesus on the cross, Christ crucified, the wisest as well as the most beautiful, as well as the most evil thing that has ever happened. The wisest thing ever in the history of the universe. As a result, 
Tertullian was a zealous opponent of the apologists because the apologists were a group of Christian thinkers who worked hard to unite these two systems of thought. Christian thought revealed in Holy Scripture with Greek philosophy. They trod a third path, neither to fall in love with it nor to hate it, this Greek philosophy, but to engage meaningfully and thoughtfully with it as Christian theologians. And they were called the apologists because the Greek word apologia means explanation. To give an apology when it comes to philosophy is to offer um, a defense, an explanation. Men like Clement of Alexandria, um, Origen, uh, Justin Martyr, uh, Athenagoras, uh, Theophilus, and many, many others. And what they thought they were doing was this. In writing open letters that were often addressed to the Roman emperor of the day, they aimed to show the Greek thinking world what it was that Christians believed and why these beliefs were indeed rational, reasonable, praiseworthy, and indeed, beyond that, even true. The truth. Jesus, the truth. Christianity, the true philosophy. And in order to do that, they had to use Greek ideas, Greek literature, and Greek philosophy to explain Jesus, King of the Jews. Um, these men were, uh, in a real sense, um, the evangelists of their age, a type of evangelist, that they wanted to see people come to faith in Christ. They also wanted to see the academy, so to speak, the world of intellectuals and, and the world of research and the world of thinking come to faith in Jesus Christ. Evangelists to smart people, uh, in a sense, uh, in order that the academy might be claimed for Christ, for whom actually it was made, to whom it rightfully belongs, and without whom it cannot do anything lasting or meaningful. In understanding this task, they were building bridges not only in order to see the lost saved, but in order that Greek philosophy might be seen for what it truly was, a mixture of good and bad, some true things, some good ideas, some not. They were, in a sense, making Greek philosophy safe for Christian kids. That which was bad and evil could be acknowledged and rejected without fear or suspicion. They were, they were, they were making it safe. Clement of Alexandria said, don't be afraid of Greek wisdom. Don't be scandalized by it. He wrote, before the advent of Christianity, philosophy was needful to the Greeks for righteousness. Now it is useful to piety for those who attain faith through demonstration. In other words, it continues to have legitimacy in teaching. Philosophy was a schoolmaster to the Greeks as the law was to the Hebrews, preparing the way for those who are perfected by Christ. Uh, there were many, as I've said, uh, like Tertullian, who opposed the entire project. Nevertheless, trying to connect with outsiders using their language and um, thought categories in order to share the gospel with them, 
in a way that they can understand. In fact, that is, of course, entirely biblical. It's incarnational. It's exactly what Paul was doing on Mars Hill in the city of Athens in our Acts reading today. He was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. However, he wasn't quoting from the Bible. Rather, when there's quotation marks, he was quoting from their literature, their poets, uh, Epimedides, the Cretan, and Aratus, um, the Cilian. A poetry that was actually dedicated to Zeus. And he's using poetry about Zeus to help them understand who the God of the Bible is. Likewise, when John writes, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, he is creating in our minds strong resonances. And he's doing that with Greek philosophy as well as the Hebrew scriptures. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of all humankind. And of course, if, if we're a bunch of, of Hebrews and we're familiar with the Old Testament, uh, we'll hear strong echoes of Genesis 1. And again with Proverbs chapter 8. And possibly also Psalm 8. But if you were a Greek and you didn't know the Hebrew Scriptures, when you heard that Jesus is the Word, the Logos, that's word in Greek, that Jesus is the Logos, likewise you'd know instantly that John is talking about something incredibly important. And that's because the Greek word Logos was an important word in all of the major Greek philosophical schools. The Logos in Greek thought, was the thought principle, the foundational idea of which the entire universe was an expression. The Logos was the one idea that explained everything. Ancient string theory. Does the Apostle John, a Jew, intend this meaning, this Greek meaning, as well as its Hebrew associations, when he describes Jesus as the Logos? Well, we don't know for certain, but almost certainly yes, I would say. After all, he is writing in Greek, not Hebrew. So the apologists of the 1st, 2nd, and 3rd century were continuing this tradition of engaging imaginatively and creatively with the thought world of the people around them in order to defend the faith, bring others to faith in Christ, and uh, bring, uh, the, uh, bring useful ideas also into the church. And the apologists have left us an important legacy that we must consider. Uh, firstly, in working out how to explain the gospel to the Greek-thinking world, they built the intellectual apparatus that would make possible the creeds. Christian truth presented in propositional form. And uh, we've already considered the creeds as a product uh, of this era of Christian history. That was sermon number three in this series. You can listen to it online or watch it on our Facebook site if you missed it. 
Um, you may remember, if you did hear it, that I argued that this foundational work of uniting the Jewish and Greek ways of thinking not only gave us the creeds, but also established a powerful foundation without which, in time, neither science nor liberal democracy would be possible. Uh, they did incredibly important work in forming the society that we now take for granted. Secondly, they have left us the legacy of Christian apologetics. Christian apologetics is that branch of theology that seeks to offer an explanation, to defend the gospel against the typical objections which arise within our home culture. And some of the most brilliant evangelists over the centuries have essentially been apologists. Um, last year, we looked at famous Christians of the 20th century, and two of the six people that we thought about were famous evangelists, Billy Graham and C.S. Lewis. And of course, in the 20th century, many, many millions of people came to faith in Jesus Christ through those two men. But of course, their styles were completely different. Billy Graham was an evangelist proper, with an anointing from the Holy Spirit for simply proclaiming the gospel and telling and inviting people to respond. C.S. Lewis, in contrast, was really an apologist, meeting the objections of his day. What about pain? What about miracles? What about hell? C.S. Lewis, we remember, he wrote some famous novels, the Narnia Chronicles and the Screwtape Letters, as, as well as some theological reflections like mere Christianity, the problem of pain, miracles. Um, C.S. Lewis presented Christian truth both in story form as well as in propositional argument form, theology. In our world today, uh, John Lennox, professor of mathematics at Oxford University, he's a well-known apologist. But probably the man who best represents this tradition in Australia currently is the historian and Anglican priest John Dixon, who has spoken here at St. Barnabas in the past and in WA many times. He describes himself as an evangelist. I've, I've heard him describe himself as an evangelist, and he certainly is. But his form of evangelism is apologetics, answering the concerns of our skeptical age. Did Jesus really exist? How can we know? Is belief in a resurrection historically credible? And if you look at John's publication list, there is a remarkable correspondence between his titles and those of C.S. Lewis. But each man writing for a different generation with slightly different objections within their home cultures. Holly, uh, Ordway, Holly Ordway was having dinner one night in a casino in Nevada, USA, and she was surrounded by slot machines. In her 30s, uh, Holly was there to uh, compete as an athlete because uh, she was a uh, fencer, uh, although she also had a PhD in English literature and she was teaching composition at a Californian university. 
having dinner with um, her coach and um, his wife, they started talking about one of the Narnia films that had just come out. And this led them into a discussion about the existence or not of God. Holly says that at that time she thought of Christianity as superstitious nonsense, a blemish upon modern society, and the Bible a collection of fairy tales. She says, quote, I was radicalized as an atheist and hostile towards Christians in general. But that conversation with her coach excited her to start reading the works of contemporary apologists, including a defense of the resurrection by Bishop N.T. Wright. And soon afterwards, she committed her life to Christ. Today, Holly teaches apologetics at Houston Baptist University and has published extensively on both C.S. Lewis and apologetics. And one reason for talking about Holly Ordway is simply to point out that whilst apologetics has traditionally been a masculine domain, Many of the cutting-edge thinkers uh, today with respect to engaging imaginatively with contemporary culture in defense of the faith are women. Another reason for talking about this is simply to point out that apologists are there for you. If you, perhaps like Holly back then, are having doubts or reservations, or questions about whether the things that Christians talk about are really true. Apologetics is there for you. And you might also like to think and pray about whether God has called you to be an apologist. Because my guess would be that many of you are actually very good apologists, perhaps without knowing it. But perhaps we might frame that question more broadly. What is your ministry between Sundays? What's your ministry? If you are a parent, a mum, or a dad, you are a pastor teacher. That's your call. It may not be the whole of your call, but that is your call. Or you might find yourself in school, or university, or nightclub, or showroom, or staff room. What ministry do you find yourself doing there? You might be an evangelist, preaching the gospel, telling people what it is and how to respond. You might be a prophet, suffering for your witness and testimony to Jesus Christ and the things that are important to him. You might be a priest, listening and bringing everything you hear to God in prayer, interceding for your boardroom in the throne room of God. You might be a pastor looking after your staff members, your employees, like a shepherd looks after his sheep, protecting them from all harm, guiding them into what is right. But for some of you, perhaps for many of you, Christ's call on your life at this time might be for you to be an apologist to find the right way to reveal Jesus using their lingo, their categories, their stories, their songs, their movies. Particularly if you have a special love in your heart for the skeptic, the cynic, and the searcher, then the art of apologetics is perhaps something you should think more about. 
Of course, you could be all of these things, at least theoretically, because Jesus is all of these things. The the Word made flesh, God in human form, the exact representation of God, the perfect human being, the reason for everything, the one who explains everything. Well, in this series of sermons, the intention was to illustrate how the church changed in a very short space of time from that thing which we recognize in the New Testament, independent home churches springing up in response to Paul's preaching of the gospel in synagogue and marketplace, to the church that we're familiar with today, which includes creeds and bishops, priests and deacons, Scrolls and letters merged into one Bible, etc., etc., orthodoxy. The apologists laid down an important foundation for us and continue to challenge us to consider how we might continue to engage imaginatively with the world of ideas around us. They challenge us to consider how are we taking back through prayer, hard work, and loving conversation, the public spheres of universities, schools, and marketplaces in order that they might be filled with Jesus. For he who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe, every place, Every space, every thought filled with Jesus. For this is its meaning and purpose. To God be the glory, through Jesus his Son, now and forever. Amen.